Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. We're now getting to be halfway through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to get there, folks. Nehemiah, chapter 6. Uh, today we're going to read verses 15 and into chapter 7 to verse 4. So, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. In, the, in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were uh, bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanah, and uh, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of their guards post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses have been rebuilt. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Kids, when you look outside and you see the brown grass, how the grass withers, and when you see the flowers just sort of wilt under the heat of the sun, you need to look at that and remember that the word of our God will stand forever. It will not wilt like that. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of this day and for this time together. Uh, but Lord, we come today as a, as a needy people. God, many uh, here today have uh, are enduring difficulties. Lord, we know that there are those who struggle with daily pain and physical ailments. Uh, Lord, we know that there are others that are here today that are... Uh, struggling with spiritual battles and temptations. Lord, we know that there are those that are here today who uh, have overwhelming circumstances in their life. And God, they just, they just don't know how they can go on. Lord, we're all at different places. We have different things going on. But we pray that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would give us ears to hear and to take heart, O oh God, and to believe in faith the things that you say. We pray, O oh God, that you would apply these things to our, our lives, that we might walk in obedience, and that we might glorify you. So, Lord, please now, as, as we look at your word, may you speak to us, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, you've heard it said that Rome wasn't built in a day, and uh, basically that phrase means that important things cannot be done in a hurry. But if you're going to do things well, that oftentimes 
It takes time to do that. And that's true, if you think about it, for the kingdom of God, and even for the slow progress of the people of God in our sanctification. Uh, those of us who are a little bit older, we may understand that maybe a little bit more. Sometimes how slow that work can be. But I think all of us, no matter what our age or our place in life is, we know that sanctification, that work of God where he makes us like Christ, where we die more to sin, where we live more under righteousness, that that is something that takes a long time. You see, where you see slow work, uh, progress in the work of God, um, we can rejoice. But also, like I said earlier when I was talking about Iran, uh, where you see the work of God, you also see challenges coming along the way in the work of Satan that comes against it, which actually draws our attention to this great hope that we have, that where the work of God is doing, God is in the midst of that work. And he also enables us to complete the work that he's given us to do. And that sort of leads us to our first point today of God's enabling grace. God's enabling grace. If you look at chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, well, let me just read verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th of the month of the law in 52 days. Now, from this verse, we know that Nehemiah has been in Jerusalem for only about six months. It may have seemed longer than that, me preaching through these chapters, but he's only been there for, for six months. And in that time, Nehemiah has examined the wall. He's rallied the Jews to take on the task of rebuilding the wall. And they finished that task in a short period of time, just 52 days. And, and the progress that's been made has been done against all odds. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have noticed as I've been preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah is not only the great work that God has done, but just how much opposition there is uh, to the work of God that goes on. Now, my hat is off to, to Nehemiah. Uh, but in many ways, uh, what we see in the book of Nehemiah is an illustration of the Christian life and the advancement of the kingdom of God that progress is made by the grace of God. Progress in the building up of the kingdom of God or the work of sanctification in the people of God is the work of God's grace. But that progress is made in the context of adversity. And here we are only about halfway through the book and we've already seen all kinds of opposition. And I'm not gonna go through every instance and we can even go back to the book of Ezra and see opposition there as well. But even in Nehemiah, in chapter 5, we see that internal strife that's taken place where there were the haves and the have-nots amongst the Jews. There were those rich Jews who were taking advantage of the poorer Jews, and uh, you know their kids were being sold into slavery, and they didn't have food to eat, and, and all these things that were happening. And Nehemiah came and rebuked them, and, and praised God, the people of God repented of their sin, and, and restored the people and provided the food and everything. But we've also seen external opposition. We've seen this, what we call the unholy trinity, Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem, that um, have been coming against Nehemiah and the people ever since chapter 2. So from chapter 2 to chapter 6, it's just like waves uh, that are uh, smashing against the, the seashore 
uh, these men just keep coming against Nehemiah and they try something to tempt him and that doesn't work and so they come against him again to, to, uh, uh, to try to dissuade him but they cannot well like the rebuilding of the wall in our sanctification and the kingdom of God progress occurs against all odds in the face of opposition um, so we must never forget that we have an enemy that will challenge and oppose any progress we have in holiness. So as you're here today and, you know, maybe you're seeking to teach your children the catechism and you're, you have family worship and you're training them in the faith. And sometimes that is a difficult task. Well, that's not just your children. You have an enemy that is coming against you and does not want you to train your children. As you are here to, to, to faithfully every day spend time in God's Word, uh, to, to meditate, to abide in Christ as we've been talking about in Sunday school, and you just find that it is so hard to do that, or maybe you've been wanting to get to Wednesday nights to, to pray and be at prayer meeting. You know, any, any effort towards holiness, Satan is right there to disillusion us and dishearten us in the Christian life. Uh, but God doesn't leave us alone in the spiritual conflict, but shows us His grace, um, His undeserved gift, that we might stand firm even in the midst of such difficulties. Well, God was gracious that He gave Israel a, a, a godly leader in those times, the man Nehemiah. And, and while Nehemiah really doesn't draw attention to himself, and we don't even really see the people putting their attention on Nehemiah, he truly is a godly man who stands firm in the face of continual challenges and attacks. You know, he doesn't give up easily. You know, if I were to face, or if you were to face, what Nehemiah went through, go back and read chapters 2 through 6. Spend some time this afternoon and, and put yourself in his place. And imagine if you had encountered those attacks. I'm guessing most of us would have given up a long time ago. But Nehemiah was a man that, that persevered. He stood firm, rooted in the rock. Um, and God is his rock. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Nehemiah didn't have any struggles. I mean, the text doesn't really convey that to us that he did. But I'm sure he did have those struggles as, as he turned to the Lord. But, but even... Though by the time we get to chapter 7, Nehemiah has been given many reasons why he might quit, why he might want to give up or be discouraged and not finish the mission. You know, you have to understand we're only halfway through the book. There's a whole lot more challenges coming, okay? And I say that to you this morning if, if you are in that position, if you have had those struggles, if, if you have had Satan coming against you in various ways, whatever it may be, don't lose heart. You're not alone. Nehemiah doesn't give up. He sticks to the mission that God has given to him. Now it does raise a good question. How does he do it? How is it that Nehemiah has not given up? Well, we might ask the question this way. How can I keep going when my spiritual progress is slow going? Right? When things are moving along slowly and I, I don't see that progress in my faith or adversity is all around me or there are trials and temptations within it seems so hard to see the work of the kingdom in my life how am I to keep going 
Well, you might hear modern day preachers say, you just need to be a Nehemiah. Right? Can't you just hear modern day preachers be, just be a Nehemiah. Just stand firm. Well, yes, Nehemiah did. Uh, his faith is portrayed as strong. Yes. But it's not Nehemiah who is the focus of this book. Uh, we are to look at the one on whom Nehemiah placed his faith, and that is God. If you want to put it this way, Nehemiah was a great man as far or a good man as far as sinners are concerned, but God is great. God is the one that we turn to, that we look to in those times of difficulty. Nehemiah realizes that he's not the hero of this book, but God is. God is the hero. And Nehemiah knows that. Nehemiah knows that God is the hero. And so in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 14, if I could review just a little bit of what I we looked at last week, you know, um, we see that when Nehemiah was attacked by this unholy trinity, these three wicked men that kept coming against him, what did he do? Well, the first thing he did was he wasn't ignorant of the attacks of the enemy, right? He wasn't ignorant of the attacks of the enemy. You know, they sought to intimidate him, to discredit him, and to tempt him to sin. And, and yet, Nehemiah could see exactly what it was that the enemy was seeking to do. They were wanting to get him to meet in a, in a private place so that they could kill him. So they were wanting to intimidate him and harm him. And then they wanted to discredit him. They, they came to him and they said, oh, we know why you're build, rebuilding this wall. You want to become king. Well, you just wait till the king of Persia hears about this. Then we'll see what happens, you know. So they're, they're wanting to dis discredit and cause fear in him. And then if that doesn't work, which it did not, you know, Nehemiah wasn't a man who was going to foolishly throw his life away and meet these guys in a secluded place. But at the same time, he wasn't going to give in to temptation. And they tempted him by saying, you know what? People are trying to kill you, so what you need to do is run into the house of God. Well, Nehemiah did value his life, but not to the extent where he would disobey the word of God. And he knew that God's word said only the high priest could go into the temple in that way. And so he said, no, I can't do that. He would rather lose his life than disobey the word of God. And so he stands against the attacks of the enemy, but he also followed the teaching of God's word. As I said... He wasn't willing to disobey God's word just to uh, save his life. And then he also prayed. He prayed for himself, and he prayed against his enemies that his enemies would be thwarted. And, and so uh, we see here that Nehemiah knows that God is the hero. And we see that in verse 16. It says, And when all our enemies heard of it, that is, that the wall had been finished, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You see, Nehemiah knew that God was the one that he was to turn to, that this was God who enabled them to do this. And there lies the strength of Nehemiah and the people of God, that God is the hero of their stories. And I, and I thought about that this week as I was reading this, and I thought, wow, who's the hero of my story? 
Who's the hero of your story, of your life? Who are you living to please? Well, you know, it'd be great if you would say God, right? It'd be great if I would say that. Unfortunately, I think too often we can ourselves, we can say that, well, actually, I'm, I'm seeking to please myself. We were looking at the topic of love in Sunday school, and Noah made a very good point. He said, oftentimes, our love, I mean, definitely the love of the world is like this, but even our love can be like this, that it's really about what pleases me rather than giving sacrificially, giving as an act of my will to other people. And, and so oftentimes we can live to please ourselves or maybe someone other than God. But no wonder if that is the case that we are given to discouragement when circumstances don't meet our expectation. Or, or no wonder we're given to fear when things we value are threatened and challenged. But when God is celebrated in our lives, when He is the hero, when He is our first love, as, as John says in the book of Revelation, it is our pleasure and our delight to walk in His grace. To walk in His grace and to draw strength from Him. As God people walk in God's grace and see His mission advance, um, we read here that the nations actually became afraid. Uh, we read earlier that the nations were trying to make Nehemiah afraid, but now here the opposite is happening. God has turned the tables, and the nations were afraid because the people of God were advancing. And, and this is often how it works, if you really think about it. I mean, the world seeks to discourage and undo and intimidate the church, but by the grace of God, the kingdom of God continues to advance and the people of God continue to advance. And when that happens, and the nations watch, they're oftentimes in fear. Now this is how they oftentimes express it. It bothers unbelievers when Christians do well. When they succeed, they, they wrestle with that. They oftentimes want to do something about that. It bothers unbelievers when they see the church prospering. And oftentimes, you'll see the world come against the church in those times when God's kingdom is going forth. It bothers unbelievers when non-Christians become Christians. You know, we sort of live in a day and a time where everybody's saying, hey, you ought to just get to do whatever you want to do. But if a person, if you see a person uh, made a new creature in Jesus Christ and they become a Christian, then oftentimes the non-Christians around them push back. Remember how Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem wanted to intimidate and discredit and tempt Nehemiah to sin, um, that Nehemiah might fear them. But instead, we see, instead of them intimidating Nehemiah, now the nations are intimidated by Israel. And if you look at church history in the Bible, uh, you see this happen over and over and over. I mean, just, just think about Pharaoh, right? He sought to intimidate Israel, he, he put them in bondage. Moses came, wanted to, he said, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh wouldn't do that. He was seeking to intimidate them. So what did God do? Well, God turned it around. And what happened in the end was Israel left Egypt. All the firstborn in Egypt were dead. And the Egyptians were like, get out of here. Let us give you treasures. Just leave our place. 
Or maybe when Joshua and this small band of, of Jews were, were going through to the promised land, the nations tried to intimidate them. And you saw the different nations come out to fight against Israel because they thought that they could undo them. But God turned it around. And Israel's victories made the nations afraid. Right? They had heard about the name of God. And even before the Israelites got there, there were many that were afraid because they had heard the stories of what God had done. Even David, when his enemies, his enemies taunted him, God turned it around and his enemies became afraid of him. Now, I wish I could say that that's always the way it is with the church. That the enemies of God are always afraid of the church. But Christians are not always on the winning side. At least not for the moment. Okay, Christians are not always on the winning side. At least not for the moment. But God always has a way of turning things around. Now, that might be immediately. It may be just short-lived, the opposition that we encounter. But other times it's more slowly. It, it happens more slowly. And, and that opposition continues. And it may be not just a day or a week or months. It may be years. It may be decades that Satan comes against us. But, and Christians may not be on the winning side, but that is just for the moment. But he promises, God promises in his word that ultimately the church will prevail. And like in the book of Nehemiah, God's people today, though oftentimes have to wait in the midst of difficulties. I know that's hard. And, and oftentimes, like I said before, you know, those waves that crash against the shore, you know, oftentimes waves of hardship and even attacks of the evil one will come against us. And in those times, we have to wait on the Lord. We wait upon Christ, who is our rock, until we will see what God will do. We really, it'd be good for us to remember sort of the motto that we've come across throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is this phrase, that the good hand of our God is upon us. That the good hand of our God is upon us. This is how we will persevere in the slow work of God in our lives as he builds up his kingdom and he builds up his people. When we have a sense of seeing all things as the providence of God, as the work of God coming from his hands, the good hand of God is upon us. Now God has a plan that's bigger than his people, yet God has a plan that includes the work of his people. And, and not only does God's plan oversee all the details of the work, but even the providential movements of those who oppose the work of the Lord. So in other words, God's providence even includes those circumstances that are against you, those difficulties, those challenges that come your way. A couple of chapters back, we saw how families uh, work, were working on the wall. And in one case, there was a man who he only had daughters. And they went out and they worked on the wall. And God worked through those efforts of those people. God worked through every person as every brick was laid until God's work was done. 
J.I. Packer, um, in speaking on Nehemiah, he, he puts it this way. He said, everything is providence. Everything is providence. As you look at your life and you just go, oh God, I don't understand this. The one thing that you can know is everything is providence. Everything comes from God's hands. There's no detail that God misses. There's no breath taken that God skips. There's no bricks that were placed without the intimate detail of God's design. Everything is providence. And, and that's true not only on the wall, but in the life of the people of God. Every detail is important, and everything is providence. And in God's providence, completing the wall doesn't mean that God's work is done. That brings us to our second point, the enemy's unending attack. You know, even though the work is done, the enemy continues to attack, verses 17 through 19. Um, as I said earlier, J.I. Packer said, everything is providence, but we also need to understand, but not all providence is easy. The Puritans used to refer to this as hard providence. Sometimes the things that come from the hand of God are hard for us to accept. We don't always understand uh, how or why God is doing these things, you know, or how he's going to use them in our lives for our good. But the one thing that I love about the Bible is that God doesn't sugarcoat things. He tells us the way it is. And no sooner was the work on the wall done, but we see another attack on the enemy, uh, of the enemy. In this case, it was Tobiah. And I think it's interesting, the passage that we had today was pretty short, but three verses of this were taken up with this encounter with Tobiah. Tobiah is just, he's sort of a guy that just keeps dogging Nehemiah. He just keeps coming after him. I was trying to think of a, a good way to express this, and then I, I heard a preacher use this illustration. He goes, Tobiah sort of reminds me of Gollum and Lord of the Rings. What Gollum was to Frodo is, so is Tobiah to Nehemiah. So for those of you that are the Lord of the Ring fans, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, Gollum who had to have the ring and Frodo had the ring and so he, he dogged him and followed him so that he might overtake him and, and get the ring. He's sort of a wicked, slimy kind of creature. You know, I guess Tobiah was sort of the same way. Even though he was someone who was very important, he, he was a leader, he was a man of means and influence. And if you recall from last week when I sort of described Tobiah, I, I mentioned that he had a Jewish name, he had connections in Israel as well. His son married the daughter of a high-ranking Jewish official. And so his, uh, uh, he was connected with the Jews. But his primary purpose was his political position. He was a man that was seeking power. And so, of course, he was against the Jews getting established and having a sense of fortitude against his possible attacks. And so it was sort of through these family connections that Tobiah began to work to see if he could become a thorn in the side of, of Nehemiah. You see, Tobiah could not stop Nehemiah, but maybe he could cause dissension in Nehemiah's ranks. And through his connections with those family members who were, as we look at the text, they were sort of in the upper part of society he thought that maybe he could use his influence to throw his weight around. 
And we read in verse 17, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Now I don't know exactly what that means, that he was bound by oath, but there was some connection there. And what this does mean is, is that uh, Tobiah had spies in Nehemiah's camp. There were, there's actually a mole in Nehemiah's ranks because we, we read that uh, their allegiance was with Tobiah. And we read at the end of verse 9, uh, excuse me, uh, we read at the ver end of verse 19 um, that there were people reporting what Nehemiah was doing to Tobiah. So that's where the mole comes in. But uh, what was Tobias' goal in the, all of this? Well, if you look at the verse, at the very end of verse 19, it says, And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Fear is a consistent strategy of Nehemiah's enemies. If you struggle with fear today, if worry sort of overcomes you, that is a, a, a weapon that the enemy oftentimes uses. You see, Tobiah was against God's work from the very beginning, seeking to intimidate and discredit and tempt Nehemiah. And as we saw just, um, well, as, just even as we take a few steps back, we see that's exactly the plan that Satan has and has had from the very beginning. You see, God has a plan and a purpose for his people and his kingdom, but Satan also has a plan and people and a purpose to thwart the work of God. I don't know if you ever think about that. We talk about the plan of God, but we oftentimes don't think about Satan having a plan to come against and to thwart the work of God. Of course, we know that God is greater than Satan, but still, nonetheless, Satan comes against his church. You see, wherever God is at work, there Satan will be to come against it. So one of the things I want you to notice too is that in this book that the men have come primarily against Nehemiah. There have been times when this unholy trinity of, of rulers from around Jerusalem came against the people of God and, and tempted them uh, and sought to dishearten them, but mostly they've come against Nehemiah. And, and that oftentimes is Satan's strategy to oppose the leaders of God's people. Whether that be elders in the church, whether that be fathers in the family, or the heads of households. I want you to know that if you're here today and you're a leader in your household, you are um, one that has a target on your back. If Satan can take you down, he can destroy your family. If Satan can take an elder down, a ruling or a teaching elder, he can take down a church, maybe even take down a denomination if he attacks enough churches. We must never forget that as long as progress is being made for God's kingdom, there is still the serpent in the weeds. And I know not all snakes are venomous, but Satan is. And he comes against us, brothers and sisters, to cause us harm. And so while it's good for us as God's people to celebrate the progress of the kingdom of God and our own sanctification, just like the people uh, uh, were uh, rejoicing in the fact that the wall was built, 
We must never let our guard down. We must understand that our enemy is there. Even at those times when we are... Uh, when we've sort of gotten the victory or it's been a, a great thing, we've grown in our sanctification, you know, or we've seen something happen in the kingdom of God and we rejoice in those times, it, it, we are tempted as God's people lots of times to let us guards down. But when does those low lows come in your life? Aren't they often times when you were just up on the mountaintops? You were just with the Lord. You were rejoicing. You know, for pastors, I told you last week, you know, for pastors, Mondays are oftentimes the greatest days of temptation. After you've been with God's people, you've preached the word, you've seen the glorious things of God, you know, happen in, in our midst that we were able to be in God's presence. And it seems like on Monday is the day when most pastors say, I just want to quit. I'm just overwhelmed. I'm just tired. That's oftentimes the way that Satan works. The enemy never stops. The nations may be afraid, but that doesn't mean that they quit pursuing God's people. Satan is crafty and clever and real. And only a fool would pretend that there were no enemy. Now, lest you think that I'm celebrating Satan more than our Savior, let me just remind you, we do have an advocate, brothers and sisters. We have a very real advocate. The good hand of God is upon us, and let us never forget that. Jesus Christ, who abides in a position of power and authority today, even now, as we are hearing the word of God preached, Christ is in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. All things have been placed under his feet. And what is Jesus doing? He's praying for you. He's praying for the church. He prays for the work of God. The one who died to save you prays to preserve you. And the resurrection reminds us that God will have the sure victory. That God will finish the work he has begun in his people. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are to be realists, yes, we not only need to view life knowing that Satan is real and he's active, but also living in the reality that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? We are. We may not feel like that. When the waves are crashing on against us, we may not feel that we are conquerors, but we must never forget that our Savior is praying for us. I just think what Jesus said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. You see, Satan couldn't do that without going through Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm praying for you, Peter. Now we know that Peter fell, but Christ restored him. He didn't fall away like Judas. He just stumbled. But God sustained him. Brothers and sisters, learn to lean on him when you are attacked. God loves you. He, he has proven that love for you in dying on the cross. In giving you his spirit. You can trust him. Lean on him. Rest upon him. And that brings us to our third point, which is a shorter point, but that is that the work remains. Okay? The wall's completed, but the work of God is not. We're only about halfway through the book of Nehemiah, so there's a lot more that God's going to do in terms of the work amongst his people. And it's a good reminder that we must celebrate the progress of God's work 
but we also must not drop our guard. We must know that God is continuing to work in our lives. Uh, Nehemiah understood this, and so we, we read in chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave the brothers Hanai and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. You see, Nehemiah knew that God's work was not done, that there was more to do. And so what does he do? What does he do? Look at your text. He delegates. He delegates the work that others can do so that Nehemiah can do the work that only he could do. And it, it's, it's, it's not that this work was beneath Nehemiah, but he recognizes that if he gets caught up in the minutia of maintaining the, the security of Jerusalem, that the rest of the work that God will call him to do, that we'll look at in the weeks ahead, would never ever happen. You see, there's really two types of leaders, of servant leaders at least. There's doers and there's delegators. Doers and delegators. And there's a big distinction between the two. And oftentimes, this is one of the biggest challenges in the life of the church. Because most leaders are doers, and very few are delegators. Um, and this becomes true of officers, of elders, of uh, deacons, even in women's ministry or any other ministry of the church. You can end up doing all these things rather than delegating. And those of you who are involved in leadership, you know what I'm talking about. And you might find yourself very worn out and very tired of all the things that you have to do. Now, one way you might put it is this, that a church full of doers will get the job done, but a church that has delegators will keep the jobs done without exhausting its leaders. Without exhausting its leaders. And that's the difference between doers and delegators. Now, if I might speak personally, as a church planter, I've been a doer, which has served us well, I think, as a church, because there is a lot of work, a lot of things that have to be done when you plant a church, more than uh, I could think to enumerate right now, but if I sit down and thought, you know, I could tell you there is a lot, and anybody that's been here since the beginning and been part of that, they could attest to that work, that there's a lot of doing that has to be done. But I also, recently, I've really been praying and thinking about our church and, and, our, and the life of our church, and I think where I have failed is where it, it was good for me to be a doer at the beginning. Uh, I have not turned into a delegator, and I have still been doing. And I realize that for the sake of Christ's church, I need to become a delegator. And actually, that's what precipitated that announcement in the bulletin about those ministry opportunities. Um, I'm working from morning till night, and I'm doing these things that other people are capable of doing. And then there's other things that I need to be doing that people can't do, like things like training officers and equipping leaders in the church so that we might have our own elders, we might have our own deacons. We're not that far, brothers and sisters, from becoming a particular church. 
and I should be giving myself uh, to that ministry but that means that I need to give up other things and so as you read that announcement don't just read over that glibly and say oh yeah okay well I hope somebody comes forward and does that brothers and sisters if we want to see the ministry of Kirk of the Plains go forward we need to hand those things off I need to hand those things off and it's not because I'm an overworked pastor this is for the sake of God's kingdom and, and that's not a guilt trip that's just a reality and so prayerfully consider those things you see Nehemiah rightly realized that for the work to continue he must delegate just like God has given people with different spiritual gifts in the New Testament in the Old Testament it was the same way people had gifts that they use well Nehemiah didn't simply appoint men but he also gave instructions and we see those instructions in verse 3 I'm not going to read that text to you but uh, Nehemiah warns these leaders not to drop their guard he tells them when to unlock the gate and when to lock the gate to make sure that the people are safe and then in verse 4 we see that while the the walls are rebuilt the city itself was still very vulnerable it was not complete there actually weren't many people even in the city and Nehemiah recognizes that amongst the victory of the the completion of the walls that the people are still vulnerable and that's why he gives this instruction to these new leaders that they might care for the people that are under their oversight and this really relates to the Christian life and I sort of want to close with this you know we might ask maybe the question this way um, as we think about the city gates and I, I this might sound like a stretch at first but just stick with me are our gates closed are our lives protected look if you would to Proverbs 25 28 I think this will help make it a little more clear Proverbs 25 28 A man without self-control, right? Fruit of the Spirit. That's what without. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. We see that what Nehemiah is doing here is, in one sense, sort of an illustration of the Christian life. That a life that is broken into, a, a city that is broken into and left without walls is very vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And this proverb reminds us that a man without self-control or a person without self-control is like such a city. So this raises a number of questions I want us to consider. What extent do we truly realize our vulnerability and our need to close the gates in our lives. What extent do we truly realize our vulnerability and the need to close the gates in our lives? Do we understand that we need to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus? What are those things that liken us to a city left without walls? What are those areas of self-control where we are tempted to compromise? Where we're not careful what are those things that we are letting our eyes look at or our ears listen to or our hearts desire and crave that actually exposes us to the enemy so what are the temptations that arise that not only come from out there in the world 
but also the temptations that come from within our own hearts as well. Only a fool says we have no adversary. Only a fool would say there's no reason to lock our doors at night, you know, to guard my heart. A fool would say, you know, I'm fine without self-control. So how are we doing in guarding the city walls? The walls of your heart? How are you doing in guarding the walls of your family? How are you doing in guarding the walls of your church? Nehemiah not only understood his own weakness, but he understood the weakness of the people as well. And so he put a plan in place to protect the city. It sort of reminds me of Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23, a very well-known proverb. Keep, where that word can mean guard, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Brothers and sisters, let us remember that Rome wasn't built in a day. Likewise, the kingdom of God is sometimes very slow going. Sometimes our sanctification is a slow, grueling process. But progress that is being made by the grace of God And God has promised that by His grace, the work will be completed because He's the one who began the work, right? And He will finish it within you. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Let's just meditate upon the Word of God and just silently respond to the Lord as is appropriate. thank you for the work that you are doing in us. We pray, oh God, for your children here this morning, especially, Lord, for those that are discouraged or disheartened or have fallen into temptation and tempted to just beat themselves up as as Satan is just condemning them. And um, we just pray that you would remind us who we are and the work of God that you are doing in our lives. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to stand fast in your grace in those difficult times. Help us, Lord, as you call us so often to wait. The circumstances just keep coming. More comes and more comes, and we're feeling the weight, and we're not sure how we can ever stand firm. But help us to wait, anchored to the rock of Christ, that we might stand firm until the end. Oh, Lord, remind us and lift our eyes to see that for the moment we may be going through these things, but we are promised victory 
in the end. Oh God, you will preserve your church. Encourage our hearts, oh God, as we, as we walk in faith in your promises that you give to us. And Lord, I pray for any that may not be here, that be here today who don't know you. If, they, if they've been living their own way and their life is, is just a mess. And they hear these words of truth. And as hard as it is to hear that the Christians suffer, they, they hear the good news that you love them. And that you're calling them to yourself. That they are to repent of their sin and turn to you. May they know that you will receive them and not reject your people. We thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen.